Today is Father's Day. First of all, happy Father's Day to all of you dads. We're all grateful for you. It's, uh, it's one thing to say happy Father's Day when your kids are 350 miles away at the lake and I didn't wake up to any breakfasts or presents or cards or anything today, but you know what? It was pretty wonderful. <laughs> Today is, today is also uh, the first real Sunday of what we call ordinary time. Our seasons have shifted here in the church calendar. And I think there's some wisdom to these kinds of rhythms. We've, we've just experienced these different rhythms, these different moments of experiencing God with us in Advent, God for us in these seasons of Lent and Easter, God in us in this season of Eastertide and Pentecost. And now we're experiencing this season of God through us. And most of our life, most of our year is lived right here in this space, is lived in what we call ordinary time. If you've still got a little bit too much Pentecostal or charismatic in your bones, you may want to call it extra ordinary time. But it's just this reality that in this humdrum day-to-day existence, that God is with us. And not only is God with us, but God is for us and God is working through us. The color for this season is green. And it's this reminder of life and growth that it's in this season where it feels like not a whole lot is happening, where our roots really grow down deep and we start to dive into what it is to live our lives by the Spirit. So you would think that coming into a season like Ordinary Time, we'd be offered some really encouraging texts today. And instead we find a naked man who's possessed by demons, who's living in a tomb, and pigs that run off the side of a mountain. These are not simple texts today. But something that I want to try to pull out of these texts, and we'll see how how well that happens, is that I think for most of us, We tend to think of our life with God, we tend to think of our faith as something that's pretty mechanical. We tend to think of it as a series of buttons or switches or levers that if we push the right button or if we flip the right switch or pull the right lever, whatever we do, that somehow we can manage the outcome of our life with God. It's almost like I have a a daughter that's, she's about to be a year and a half, 18 months this week. And, you know, we have these puzzles that any of us could figure out, right? It's here's the shape of a square and the puzzle has a, a square cut out of it. And you take the square and you find the thing that looks like the square and you put the square in the square hole. We tend to think of our faith like this. And it's pretty simple. It's pretty basic. We know where the pieces fit, and so long as we can get the right pieces in the right places, we can get this thing figured out. Of course, it's not that way. And I hope that we're all, we're all mature enough to recognize that, but I think at our core, we tend to still think that the kinds of realities we find ourselves in, the kind of trouble that we find ourselves in, is somehow the result of, well, I didn't pull the right lever or I didn't flip the right switch or I didn't push the right button. I didn't get the right piece in the right place. And that's why my life is full of trouble. But of course, that's not how the world works. 
We know that life is more complex, but we still feel this kind of creeping sense of judgment in our trouble because we are meaning makers. And the easiest route to meaning in our trouble is what did I do to deserve it? So part of what I wanna share today is that it turns out our lives are not as neat and linear and mechanistic as we hope. And in fact, life is much messier and much more confusing than we're often aware of. But God's goodness is better than we can imagine. Isaiah 65 is one of our Old Testament texts today. And this is God speaking. It says, I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask, to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that did not call on my name. This is a strange text. Think about this for a minute. I was sought by those who did not ask. I was found by those who did not seek me. We're used to the exact opposite. We're used to seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. But here, God is saying, there were people who were not looking for me who found me. People who were not seeking that I said, here I am, here I am. This doesn't make any sense. It goes on. I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and offering incense on bricks. What's he saying? He's saying the people of God that I've been open-handed to, the people who I've said, won't you seek me? Won't you look for me? Won't you hear my voice when I call, here I am? That they're the one who are sitting in tombs. They're the ones that are sitting, spending the night in secret places, eating swine's flesh with broth of abominable things in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, he says, for I am too holy. So here we have the people of God, the Israelites, who are supposed to be the people who hear these words of here I am and seek me, won't you find me? And they're the ones that God is saying, you're too busy being too holy to actually be the people of God. So on one hand, you have, you have the Gentiles, the people who aren't seeking, who aren't looking, who somehow find God. And then on the other hand, you have the Jews, and think of the, the strangeness of this. Calling my own people, but we're too busy being holy to respond to God's voice. And the Gentiles, these people, God says, they didn't know I exist, but they keep bumping into me. They keep somehow finding themselves in relationship with me. Our own gospel text today out of Luke 8, Jesus shows up and there's a man who is possessed. He has no clothes. He lives in the tombs. And every time that these people try to arrest him, he breaks the shackles. Every time they try to heal him, nothing works. Jesus heals him. Jesus casts out the demons. And then what happens? What's their response to Jesus who's come and done this miracle, this thing that nobody else was able to do? What do they say to Jesus? Not welcome, 
Not, won't you come into my home? Not, here's another person who is sick. What do they say to him? We're afraid of you. Get out of here, (laughs) is what they say to Jesus. We don't want you here. And then to add strangeness to strangeness, this man that had just been healed comes and finds Jesus and says, I want to follow you. I want to go where you're going. (laughs) And what does Jesus say to him? No. (laughs) Jesus says, go home. This is not a church growth strategy. It'd be like if at the end of our service we said, everyone bow your head and close your eyes. If you want to receive Jesus Christ into your heart today, would you raise your hand? And we say, too bad. (laughs) Not today. Go home. Sorry. Jesus says to him, go live with the people who rejected me. That's the gospel story today. You want to come follow Jesus. You want to come do all the right things. Jesus says, just go home. Just go home and live with the people who said no to me. Declaring God's goodness in your life. To just go and be a question among people who didn't really catch what was going on all along. So much tension, so much strangeness in these texts today. Here's another one, Psalm 42. This is a psalm we're familiar with. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? We love this text. It's about longing, it's about desire, it's about delighting in the things that God has for us. We've sung worship songs about this psalm. And then it goes on. My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me continually, where is your God? We move from longing and thirsting and desiring to my tears are my food and where is God? Both of these prayers being prayed by the same prayer. One voice, which is to say that both of these things can be true at the same time. That all at once we can experience the the, the blessing of nearness and the brokenness of absence in our lives. That in one moment we can say, this part of my life is right and this part of my life is full of darkness and confusion. This is anything but a simplistic, mechanistic, push this button and pull this lever kind of faith. This This is wisdom. This is what it is learning to become a human being. Proverbs 14 Verse 13 says, even in laughter, the heart may ache and joy may end in grief. What is the wisdom tradition telling us? That your joy and your heartache and your laughter and your grief all being wrapped up inside of your person all at once does not mean that you are out of your mind. 
It doesn't mean that you're having some kind of psychotic break when there are parts of your life that you can laugh about and other parts that you're grieved by. Some parts of your life where you are experiencing joy and at the very same time experiencing heartache. That doesn't mean that you're confused. It means life is confusing. It just means that you're a human being. And learning to accept that, learning to live with that and to sit in it is learning wisdom. Another disorienting text for today. Launching us into ordinary time is not anything but ordinary, right? This story, the story of Elijah. And you'll remember this story. This is, Elijah's just had this standoff moment with the prophets of Baal, where they're trying to get their sacrifice to light and it won't light. And Elijah says, well, pour a bunch of water on my sacrifice and then God lights it up. We love this story. Elijah's vindicated in this story. God moves, God acts in this story. He's had this major victory moment. And we really like the story to end there. But what we, what we don't preach, the part of the story that we often don't share, is that he goes from this mountaintop victory moment where he is vindicated, where God has shown up, and then what happens next? Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. What is she saying? She's going to kill Elijah. Then he was afraid. So he got up and he fled for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, he says. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors." Here's Elijah, he's just seen this powerful act of God where God has come to his aid, made himself known, and he immediately runs out into the desert and says, I just want to die. So he lays down under the broom tree and he fell asleep. And suddenly an angel said to him, get up and eat. He looked and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and he drank and lay down again. Listen, this is not the sermon, but I think there's some wisdom that sometimes when your life is falling apart, we shouldn't underestimate the power of a nap and a snack. <laughs> it's true for our children and it is true for all of us that sometimes when our life feels like it's coming apart at the seams, what we need to do is go to bed and eat something. So he gets up, he eats and he drinks, and then he goes in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, to the Mount of God. This is Mount Sinai. This is where the law is given to Moses. And at that place, he came to a cave and he spent the night there. And then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? Isn't that the word that we all want from the Lord when we're seeking him? What are you doing here? 
He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Think about this. He runs out into the wilderness. He finds himself at Mount Sinai. God says, what are you doing here? And Elijah's response is, I'm the only one who's been faithful. I'm the only one left. It's just me. And so God says to him, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a still, small voice. Another translation, maybe a better translation, says the sound of sheer silence. I don't know if you've spent much time in sheer silence. My guess is you haven't. We're too full of notifications and conversations and everything else that our phones and our computers throw at our faces constantly podcasts and music. There's so much. We were in Jackson Hole uh, not too long ago. And one night I stepped out of the house that we were staying at. I wanted to go look at the stars for a minute in a place like Jackson Hole. And I closed the door behind me. And as I did, my ears were ringing because of the sheer silence of the moment. And you know what? It wasn't peaceful. It, it wasn't something I enjoyed being in. It's disorienting. If you look up too long and there's no sound, you can't hear anything, you can actually get confused about what's what and where things are. There's, there's actually been studies about these rooms that they've built. Have you seen these? Where they dampen every sound imaginable the quietest places that we've ever constructed for ourselves. And they've found that when people spend too much time in these rooms, they start to mentally lose it. They start to go crazy. Because there's something about not hearing anything. There's something about the sheer silence that is not this hopeful, peaceful, restful thing that we've made of it. And then when Elijah heard it, this sheer silence. He wraps his face in his mantle. He went out and stood at the entrance of that cave. And then there came a voice to him again that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah repeats himself. He gives the same answer that he gave before. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they are seeking my life to take it away. We've been told that this is a story about God showing up in the midst of Elijah's trouble, showing him that he does belong, that he can trust, that he's in God's will, that God's present to him. But what's really happening is that Elijah just repeats himself that God shows up for Elijah, and Elijah's not changed at all. No one preaches this, and no, no one prays for other people this way. 
Imagine, we all know that Father Chris has been on the recovery from his stroke. Imagine if we brought him up here this morning. We said, hey, we want to gather around Father Chris this morning. We've got some oil that we're going to anoint him. We want to, we want to press in. We want to lay hands on Father Chris. We want to trust for a blessing. We want to trust for healing and wholeness in his life. And then we say to Chris, nothing's going to happen to you. We're going to pray and nothing's going to change. <laughs> but this is Elijah's experience. And then what does God say to him? Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. What's he saying? Go back where you came from. Here's the problem. Once we start to see that this life with God is not simple, is, is not linear, it's not about finding the right buttons and levers and switches, we realize that we're never in control. And we also don't have perfect understanding of ourselves or the situations in which we find ourselves. But here's the thing, is that that problem can either frustrate us, can leave us frustrated, wondering where do we go and why is God telling me to go right back where I came from? It can either frustrate us or we can accept this reality as a gift. The Apostle Paul does this. He understands the strangeness of our life with God and he accepts it and he celebrates it, oftentimes in ways that we need help seeing. Oftentimes he, he presses these points to the point of frustration because he's aware of how unbelievably good God is and how incredibly creative God can be in solving our problems. So a couple of points and reminders of how we should approach life when things get messy and confusing and then an example from Paul. I'm going to try to hurry through this. The first thing that we need to remember is that our judgments, our understanding of the world, our opinions are only ever provisional. We all have opinions, we should have opinions. We have to make a call about people and about situations, but whatever judgments we make, we need to leave room for God to have the final word. Remember Elijah's response to God on the mountain was, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who's been faithful. This is his perception. This is his, his judgment, the way the world seems to be. He's saying, this is my opinion. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who's been faithful. And God goes on to tell him, I have preserved some 7,000 faithful that you knew nothing about. Listen, we need to speak truth. We need to release our opinions. But even in releasing our opinions and making our judgments, we know that there is one who knows the truth. And when that one speaks the truth, we need to lay down our opinions and we need to lay down our judgments, trusting that it's God's judgment and God's opinion that matters and is going to make all things right. Where we go from, it seems to me I'm the only one left, to God saying, you think you're by yourself. Here's 7,000 other people I've preserved for you. 
the problem that we run into is that we think too highly of our own opinions. We, we, we trust our opinions too much. And so our opinions go from, it seems to me, to, well, I know that's the danger. That's the shift that we need to resist in ourselves. Because part of the Christian life is having opinions, but we don't trust them. It seems, but there is one who knows the truth. We need this kind of humility in our lives to help make sense of the world. Not pretending to not have opinions, but knowing that our opinions aren't always to be trusted. The second thing that Paul knows and shows us is not just that our judgments and our opinions are provisional, but a confidence and a trust in the unbreakable goodness and endless creativity of God. This is what we need to remember, that God is endlessly good. When life is complicated, the one who holds us and loves us into being is good and his judgments about us are true. The one who has the last word about us and our reality is infinitely loving and creative. What does that mean? It means when things feel out of control, we don't have to freak out. God's working on it. Third, we need a readiness to throw ourselves into the work God is doing in the world. In all of these passages, what does God do? Jesus sends the man back to the town to declare to those who have rejected Jesus what God had done for him. God sends Elijah back on his way to Damascus. Whatever God is doing in you, God is doing for your neighbors and strangers and friends and enemies so that they can catch a glimpse of the joy and the peace that God has made possible in your life. Be ready to jump in to that work. Let me show you one quick example of this. Try to make this quick because it's Father's Day and there are hot dogs immediately after service. I know. This is Romans 10. And this is a text that we're familiar with, starting in verse nine. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Again, this is a text that we're all familiar with, but it's one that we've read as mechanistic. These are the buttons that we want to push. This is the equation that we want to write for ourselves. I don't know if I can come up with any more metaphors. That we want to say belief plus confession equals salvation. Bada bing, bada boom. This is how we've read this text. You believe, you confess, you're saved. But this is not at all what Paul is saying. <laughs> what do they used to say? It's not me, this is the Bible talking. <laughs> salvation here is not something that is given at the moment of your belief. 
It's something that the moment of belief actually opens you up toward. A little later in this letter, Paul says, now is your salvation nearer than when you first believed. It turns out that our salvation is a little more complicated than we think. Our, our, our neat model of belief, confess salvation, it's led us to all kinds of strange ideas and beliefs and experiences with one another. And I'm sure that whenever there's been somebody says, who's ready to be saved? That Paul is just like, oh man, <laughs> groaning a little bit in heaven, eyes rolling just slightly like, oh, this isn't how this works. This isn't how this works. It's more complicated. It's not a lever. It's not a switch. It's not a button. It's not an equation that you just have to get right. It's just a reality that you have to open yourself up to. So, I mean, even like these, this is beside the point. We don't have time for this. These silly arguments like, can you lose your salvation? <laughs> it's not yours to own in the first place. How can you lose something that you don't have? Salvation is not your work in your life. Salvation is God's work in your life. And what can you do to disown something that you never owned in the first place? Anyway, Paul goes on. And Paul's realizing, you think the world works this way, but it doesn't. He says, but how can they call on him when they've not believed in him? How can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. But all did not obey the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. But did I ask, did, did they not hear? Yes, they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the inhabited world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. This is a lot, but do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying this whole piece about believing and confessing and salvation, Paul sets it all up to tell us it doesn't work that way. Because Israel had heard over and over and over again, they had heard and they had understood, but they didn't believe. And then those people, the Gentiles, they weren't looking for God and they find God. That's disorienting. That's ordinary time. That's our life with Christ in the humdrum, everyday business of being a human being, that it doesn't make any sense. That is not a neat, tidy faith. And especially if you're here, if, if you're somebody who considers yourself a good person, that you're doing the right things, you believe the right things, you're in the right places. I mean, you're here on Father's Day of all days. You came to church this morning. Maybe your kids forced you to be here. That's okay. You still did it because you're doing the right things. And how disorienting to hear that even when you're doing the right things and you're saying the right things and you're believing the right things, you're going the right places, that... Sometimes God just shows up for these people over here instead of you. 
<laughs> and then Paul makes it worse. Not a whole lot worse, but they can always make it a little worse. Because to Israel, he says, all day long I have spread out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. What's Paul doing? He's saying all along, Israel thought that they were the chosen people of God. And then at the critical time, they rejected Christ. And then these Gentiles who they thought they were rejected, they embrace Christ. And now it looks like this, this reversal, right? It looks like these Gentiles in place of Israel. But Paul says, no, 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 not so fast. God does not abandon the work that God started. God doesn't leave a project unfinished. Just like God preserved this faithful remnant for Elijah, he says here in this text, God has done the same thing at this present time. And what Paul is saying is don't trust your judgments too much. When your world doesn't make sense, have your opinions and have your judgments. But know this, they shouldn't be trusted. Elijah, you're alone in a cave and you think it's just about you. But there are 7,000 other people you don't know about. This is why we have to be humble. Because there are always ways that God is maintaining faithfulness and people of faith that I know nothing about. Here's Paul's logic that he works out in some of these texts. That God calls Israel out of all the nations of the earth. Why? Because God loves the Gentiles. And their faithfulness is what leads to the salvation of the Gentiles. This is hard. The Jews' calling is to serve as priests and kings for all the nations, and they fail. But because God is God, their failure still brings about their salvation. For those of us who see ourselves as good, as, as faithful, this part doesn't sound like good news to us. But for those who, who don't feel particularly faithful or particularly good at what we do, this is good news. That even in your faithlessness, God is still going to be God. And God's still going to accomplish what God's going to accomplish. It means that God's salvation in your life doesn't rely on the perfection of anybody else's life. If you are faithful, follow closely to the will of God. And then you participate in one way in bringing about God's goodness into the world. But even if you fail miserably, that doesn't keep other people from the salvation that God has for them. The way that you're participating changes, and that should grieve us. But it doesn't change the fact that God is going to claim for God's self what belongs to God. There's this odd text in 2 Timothy that says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. God does not abandon us in our faithlessness. Here's the point. God's endless creativity can use both your faithfulness and your unfaithfulness to work out good in your life and the life of your neighbor. Now we should all want to be faithful 
We should all try to be faithful, to value faithfulness. But the good news is that even if I'm not, God's not unfaithful to me. If I fail, God doesn't fail. God won't turn his back on your neighbor because of your failure. How do we know this? Because God has brought the Gentiles in despite Israel's unfaithfulness. Paul says God has brought them in for this reason to provoke Israel to jealousy. Why? Because he wants Israel to be stirred up, to be moved back into relationship with God because everything that God is doing is for everyone. Everything God did for Israel is because he loves the Gentiles. Everything God did for the Gentiles is because God loves Israel. Everything God is doing in your life is because he loves the people around you. And everything God is doing in the people's lives around you is because God loves you. Always, in everything, from every angle, God is working to bring about good in all things. So that if I run away, God meets me. If I run back, God is there for me. If I rebel, he uses my hard heart to turn other people toward him. And if I let my heart be broken and I turn back to God, God provokes others' faithfulness to be my repentance. (laughs) Whatever I do, whatever messes we make, God takes up what we've done and makes it redemptively good for our neighbors. In our eyes, it looks like sometimes God has mercy and sometimes God's judgment. But the truth of the matter is that it is all mercy, that the justice of God is the mercy of God having the right and last word in our lives. This is why Paul ends this section to say, who has the mind of the Lord? Who has seen Who has been his counselor? There is nothing that we can give God. There's no amount of love or faith or trust or obedience. There's nothing we can give God that God has not already given to us. We do not add to God by giving God anything, which is to say that everything God gives us is a gift that is meant to be received and then given right back and given away to our neighbors. Every gift God's given is meant to be given through me to other people. However you're making sense of the world today, don't trust your wisdom. Don't trust your opinions too much. Trust God's judgment, knowing that his judgment is mercy. Know that God is at work in ways that we can't possibly trace. That that finding those pieces for that puzzle just doesn't work. What seems like failure will somehow mean salvation. All of this blessing that you're experiencing is just to provoke these other people to come into the blessing that God has for them. Everything God is doing in you is for the sake of your neighbor and everything God is doing in your neighbor's life is for your sake. Which is why we can say in the end that from him and through him and to him are all things. Life is messy and it doesn't make sense. There are no magic buttons or secret levers to get the results we want. But God's ways are unreadable because God's goodness is unimaginably deep and wide and we can trust it.
We can trust in the goodness of God. Amen.